This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Don Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Today, I visit with an exceptional photographer and creative director known for his signature style with beauty, celebrity, and fashion photography. His list of clients include the likes of Cardi B, Katy Perry, and Kelly Clarkson. He shares what it's like to spend the day shooting with Prince, how much fun he had directing feature film with RuPaul, and his photos don't just record events. They also reveal the subject at the very center. Stay tuned for visual storyteller and photographer Mike Ruiz. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La 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 la, la 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 la. Hey, hi guys, thanks so much for having me. It is a pleasure and we have not talked to a photographer of your caliber yet on this show. So I always love approaching a new discipline and learning something new. Cool. Well, I hope I can do that for you. I guess I'm curious to describe the difference of how you feel when you have a camera in your hand and when you don't. That's a good question. The difference between not having a camera in my hand and having one is how I communicate. Early in my career, I realized what the function of photography was for me was uh, another level of communication. I'm able to articulate things through photography visually that I wasn't able to prior to that, which is why I so immediately became so obsessed with shooting like the minute I had my first camera, which came to me kind of later in life. I was in my late 20s when I discovered my passion for it. And that's why is just, I got a camera and I quickly found that it was a conduit for a lot of stuff that I had to say and couldn't do it verbally. That's the difference between not having a camera in my hand and having one is my ability to communicate things that I can't verbally. Right. And I think finding an expression or a way to express yourself is one of the greatest things that the arts offers us is that academics and school and certain things in life don't allow you to have a point of view. It's like you have to learn these dates and numbers and memorize this to finish the test. They're not trying to build a better way for you to tell the world who you are. Exactly. Academic you know, information is only one way to deliver it. Whereas, you know, like a subject matter through the arts, you can deliver it in a multitude of ways. And it's all based on a person's experience, what their perception of the world is, what their perception of themselves is. All that combined and regurgitated in art can literally take one subject matter and give 30 points of view on it. Well, your signature style is very bold and provocative poses. And there's some curiosity in what's happening here. And I was listening to an interview you did with someone else where you said that you have a rich fantasy life and that you're able to bring it to life through the lens of the camera. So do you see something and then want to recreate it? Or when you get to know a celebrity subject or somebody, do you say, oh, here's a story that they bring to mind for me? 
I think it all goes back to, again, to my specific point of view and how I need to see things and how I need to communicate things. My personal experience, I mean, without going into great detail, I lived a very rich fantasy life as a kid because it was a form of escapism for me because of the environment that I grew up in. And I would have like these very rich fantasies and daydreams throughout my childhood and my early adulthood. And then when I got that camera, the floodgates of everything that I had to say and in the way that I needed to see the world, I needed to create the world that I needed to see basically. And that's my rich fantasy life. That's where it came in handy. It probably would have been problematic had I become a photographer or a storyteller because I'd just be delusional, <laughs> you know? a delusional human being but but fortunately i developed like a skill where those fantasies could manifest themselves and my rich fantasy life has served me very well it's great that you landed in the jackpot of the kind of profession that fits the world inside we've talked to artists we've talked to writers and it's in discovering how their mind works that they also discover what business they're in that they are in the business of telling their story in a certain way and they might have felt out of place or awkward or just abnormal as a kid. And now they're celebrated for the idea of the visionary sense. We talked to somebody the other day, oh, it was Christopher Marley, who puts together art with animals that have been repurposed that died naturally. It's extraordinary nature work. Imagine what an unusual kid you would be to have a house with a freezer full of parrots that his dad had saved. But now people are sending him all the stuff. Well, I mean, it's great that people are memorializing their pets or, or animals in general. I mean, I think it's such a beautiful thing. I'm an animal advocate. These animals have all passed in a natural way. And I do understand. In fact, I want to talk about a very high impact image you took for, I think it was a PETA campaign. And it really was an amazing thing that I saw on your website. It was a Leather's a Ripoff campaign, and you were shooting it with Nicole Williams. This is dramatic, and it's just an unbelievable story. When you look at that image, it leaves an impression that I think is exactly what you wanted to do. Was that your idea or the organization's idea, that design? It was my idea. I mean, it was a combination. It was my idea on how to execute it. You know, Peter tends to be a little shock and awe with their campaigns, which have been very effective. So I was all for it. You know, since I advocate so much for animals, I thought, let's do something. Will you describe the image so people on this podcast can understand what I'm talking about? We have Nicole, who's a beautiful woman, and we had a prosthetics artist put skin and had it appear that it was being ripped off of her. And then there was exposed flesh underneath it, and there was blood, and it was very graphic. So that's what we did. And, you know, of course, she had a, a look of horror and excruciating pain on her face. And, you know, it all contributed to the shock value of the image, which was very impactful and hopefully served its purpose. Well, and its purpose was to remind us that any leather jacket, anything we're wearing was the skin of something else at that point. So I think it's a good narrative. Yeah, it is. And with that said, you know, like I, I advocate for animals so much. One of the projects that I'm working on currently, it's just, I'm having this internal struggle with it, is I'm photographing Leathermen, which is, I don't know if you're familiar with the leather community and the gay community, but they've contributed so much to the gay community and part of the gay LGBTQ history and how we've developed and how we've progressed is attributed to the leather community, yet they continue to be marginalized even within the gay community. So I started, I embarked on this project to photograph them and to get quotes from them about their experience in the community and experience in life in general. 
And it, it's been really powerful. But and people have asked, well, how do you reconcile, you know, your animal advocacy with documenting stories of, of these men? It just happens to be that their faction of the community is rooted around wearing leather. I'm trying to reconcile that. I'm actually working on with this company in Europe that does vegan leather. Ah, oh, interesting. So I'm trying to reconcile all of that. So I'm actually trying to create a line of fetishy kind of like leather wear out of vegan materials. That's fascinating. That's great. Well, it is a conflict for an artist internally when you have to walk a tightrope with your values and your community and find the right things. I know you're an outspoken guy on a lot of topics, and actually I admire that you use your platform for your voice, but even better find solutions so that your engagement is one where you're a leader in that change as opposed to sort of riding the fence. Right, that's what I'm trying to do. Being a gay man and a gay artist, I've always been inspired and motivated by Tom of Finland, who I don't know if you're familiar with his art, but all of his iconography is very hyper-masculine and it's, you know, there's a lot of like uniform military type imagery from like the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s. And a lot of gay men pretty much have modeled their lives after that aesthetic. And the leather community is one of them. So that's why I have my ethical values with animals and, and advocating for, for animal welfare. But I also have a foot strongly in this community and in this aesthetic. My whole photography career has been one long self-exploration. Going back to like my rich fantasy life, I used photography to sort of manifest this world that I needed to see in order to be able to cope. It was like a coping mechanism. So a lot of my personal projects are sort of like one-offs. You know, they're not really related to my commercial work, but they're little forms of self-exploration. This is probably like my fifth big personal project that I'm working on. It's the series of Portraits of Leatherman. It's all rooted in exploring my sexuality and things that I've been drawn to, but have been afraid of and afraid of embracing and ashamed of. There's a lot of psychology that goes into creating art that I'm not sure a lot of people really tap into, but I'm really trying to kind of identify what it is that's motivating me creatively and how it relates to whatever past trauma I've had or, you know what I mean? So like, there's a lot of things that go into like creating art. You know, some people just do it organically and then probably don't think too much about what every nuance of it stems from. But I'm kind of fascinated by the psychology that drives the creation of art. And that's why like I'm, I'm exploring all these different things and trying to use them all to move all of my ideas forward, you know, like my ethical ideals, trying to move them forward. And, you know, because this project that I'm working on, these leather men, these portraits that I'm doing, they're marginalized even within the community because people perceive them as being dark and sinister and, and their proclivities are abnormal, which is all false. It's all rooted in fear and misunderstanding. And so I'm trying to, I'm trying to like shine a light on the positive side of that community. They're a bunch of incredibly sensitive, vulnerable, beautiful, supportive men, you know, and women. There's women in the leather community that I photographed as well. And they form like a brother and sisterhood. Like it's a very tight bond. Like even when they don't know each other, it's like, you know, if they see each other across the street and they don't know each other, but they're both in leather, it's like that nod to each other. It's just like a really beautiful thing. And I found a lot of support in that community towards me just by documenting them and celebrating them. So it just inspired me to want to show a little more humanity from that community, which I think a lot of people feel that they don't have. There's an element of bravery in telling stories and working on projects that you might be afraid of or you might be approaching something with trauma. That shows the element of an artist who's willing to continue to challenge themselves, you have a great deal of success. So you could avoid that at all costs. 
But the reality is that's where you need to go for your next chapter. That's the next thing you have to tackle that's bigger than maybe all of the other things you've accomplished. And I think with this particular project and community, it's more important to click with the people than to click the shutter, right? Like that you develop a trust where you're in the presence of folks and they reveal themselves in a way that you can help tell the story. It feels like that expands so much more of what humans are about as opposed to being stereotypes or simply written off as a one-note community in history, that sort of thing. Maybe you could describe as a photographer your observation of the difference between image versus self-image because so many people are caught up in this moment of photographing themselves. And part of what your world is, is that you are creating cover stories and images for magazines and celebrities and brands. Well, it's all subjective. My idea of the difference between self-image and image is subjective. There's no blanket way to approach doing what I do. People are going to photograph themselves how they perceive themselves or how they want to be perceived. And I do the same thing. I mean, I, I photograph people, A, on, on how I perceive them. And I also take into account how I feel they want to be perceived. That's an important thing for me, and I never want to betray that trust with people, and that's kind of what I'm doing with this personal project. I'm handling it with kit gloves because I don't want to misrepresent these men who have been stereotyped, and people just kind of take them at face value and don't know that they're actually human beings behind the presentation. That's what I'm, I'm trying to shine a light on, and that's what I do in general with everybody that I photograph is to try and like shine a light on their humanity. And also it's important for me to walk away from a shoot having everyone feel good. Everyone would say, wow, you know, like that felt really great. It felt it was a really positive experience. And then subsequently they feel really satisfied with the outcome. That's all important stuff. People ask you what you want your legacy to be. And you know, I just don't want to be remembered as a douchebag. You want to be remembered as like, oh, that guy was pretty cool. You know, I want people to remember how they felt as opposed to, oh, he was a great artist. I'd rather people remember like, oh, wow, I felt really great after that shoot. That's so critical. Establishing trust and respect is why people will play for you in front of the camera. While they'll go places that you discovered together is because they feel safe, right? They feel like the intent here is to have fun and to make something interesting and they want to be proud of it. They don't want to be embarrassed. And I would imagine there's great responsibility in creating covers for magazines, which you've done so many covers, but it's the face of the brand. It's the face of the celebrity. It's the first impression of the issue. And of course, if you do it well, people want to use you again. They go, that's the guy who can get us where we want to go. So did you initially feel a greater weight in shooting covers? Yeah, I always have. I, I still do to a certain extent. I still always feel like my creative flow is, I sort of mastered it. So like it's, it's a little bit on autopilot. I don't want to make that sound like it doesn't require any effort. It does. But I'm still always really cognizant of approaching things with everyone's feelings in mind, including my own. I mean, I've been in situations where people have not been respectful to me and it makes me not want to do a good job. It leaves me walking away from a situation, not feeling good. It's all reciprocal. I mean, I do my part in order to make things go well so that people would want to work with me again. But I also expect that from people as well. I initiate it because it comes from me on a photo shoot with a photographer. It all trickles down from the photographer. But if it's not reciprocated, I'm out. On a photo shoot, what does your team consist of? How many people and what are they doing? 
Typically on an editorial thing, like a magazine cover with celebrity or a fashion thing, I don't have like a big crew. I keep it small. You know, I don't have huge elaborate lighting schemes of 40 lights. I'm more about capturing an idea than I am about creating a technically proficient environment. I don't spend a lot of time or my aesthetic doesn't require a lot of technical gear and stuff. Therefore, I don't have a big crew. I usually have one assistant, the hair and makeup people and the wardrobe stylist, and then the person I'm photographing. So typically it's four or five people, although I'm shooting a huge campaign the rest of this week where there are literally like 55 people on the call sheet. <laughs> oh, man. There's a lot of people involved. Right, but it's a still shoot. Yeah, it's a still shoot, but there's a video component to it. So that's why there's a bunch of people that I'm not going to be working with directly, but it's a big crew. And I'm shooting a lot of people. I'm shooting like 30 people over three days. What's the most fun you've had on a photo shoot? I mean, the most fun I've had on any project was not on a photo shoot. It's actually the one and only feature film that I directed with RuPaul. It was probably the most fun that I've ever had. From inception to completion, from the first day we started filming to the last day of promotion, which was like a two and a half year span. It was just like uproarious laughter and knee slapping the whole time. That whole two and a half year period was like the best two years of my life. That's great. That's your feature directorial debut, which was called Star Booty, right? Yeah, exactly. And where can it be seen? You know what? I can't answer that question. Everyone asked me for DVDs. You know, it was just like, we literally did it by the seat of our pants with like a negligible budget back in 2005. And we shot it on the DVX, you know, which is a crappy, like early version of digital cassette, just poor quality all around. We never even thought it would see the light of day. So we weren't thinking distribution and all of that. We were just doing it as like a pet project for ourselves. This was before RuPaul started doing Drag Race. So, you know, he was just, he had a lot of time on his hands and so did I. So we did this thing. But then we ended up doing all of the film festivals and it got a lot of cult-like interest. And actually the Academy of Arts and Sciences wants to include the screenplay into their permanent archive, which I thought was pretty amazing for a film that we never even thought would see the light of day. Did RuPaul write it? Yeah, he co-wrote it. He wrote it with a friend of his, another writer. Basically, it was just a big, long spoof of excerpts from bad miniseries from the 80s. It was kind of like an airplane sort of spoof about ex-supermodel turns undercover CIA operative. Sounds like it was a really fun showcase for RuPaul's talent. It was a fun showcase for everyone involved. Again, we were just all a bunch of friends just working on this project, and it was just very self-indulgent and a lot of fun, and we just laughed pretty constantly through the whole thing. I know that you did music videos as well. Did those stem from having worked with music folks as a photographer that expanded into the relationship to do music video? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. I worked with a couple of people and they kind of liked the aesthetic of what I did. So they asked me if I could translate that into like a moving picture. And that's how that was born. I started bringing my aesthetic to music videos. Well, you've worked with so many music legends and luminaries. But I wonder what a day was like shooting with Prince. Oh, my favorite story to tell. I tell it to everyone. <laughs> like people who don't even want to hear it, I tell it to. Okay, well, I stumbled into this by accident, but he just seems like a guy that would be an unusual day. Yeah, I worked with him three times. The first time he was a very guarded person. So the first time was just a little tense. I mean, of everyone that I've ever worked with, I was the most nervous working with him. You know, and he picked me out of 50 photographers that were submitted to him. So that in itself was like, I was looking over my shoulder, like, is he really talking to me? I got to set and he was just very guarded and was very standoffish. But then, you know, the shoot went really well. So a year later, I get a phone call and on the other end of the line, it's like, please hold for Prince. <laughs> so I'm like, who doesn't want to get that phone call, right? So he says, hey, I'm doing this other shoot. You want to come out for it? I'm like, uh, yeah. So 
he flew us all out to Paisley Park and we did the shoot. By then he was like pretty comfortable with me. So he's like, hey, you want to hear some new music that I'm doing? And there's also a writer from Rolling Stone there. So it was me, my assistant, and this writer from Rolling Stone. But, you know, he has that big performance space at Paisley Park. So he gets his band up there and he just starts like jamming for the three of us. So the three of us are in Paisley Park in this huge performance space, pinching ourselves, like getting a free private concert from Prince. So that was like a pretty mind-blowing, surreal experience. That shoot was actually all the marketing for his Welcome to America tour. So he had us all come to the concert. And then he called us all up on stage and he gave me a shout out. While I was on stage with Prince, he shouted me out to Madison Square Garden. You know, there's a video on YouTube somewhere of him doing that. That kind of stuff is just so surreal to me. You know, because I think back to my childhood. I had this weird kind of sort of invisible childhood. And to be on stage at Madison Square Garden being shouted out by Prince was pretty surreal. It's so extraordinary. And it's a strange moment of validation (laughs) that's coming from somebody who you can't figure out how you got to the top of your game and they're the one introducing you, right? It is otherworldly. Yeah, it's strange. I feel really grateful that I can remain grateful because I still walk into shoots a lot of times and just think to myself, wow, you know, I was always one decision away from being homeless. (laughs) You know what I mean? Everybody is. Everyone's like two bad decisions away from disaster. And I always just like sigh with relief whenever I walk into like a big shoot or I'm working with like some A-list or something, I always remember to be grateful about it. You know, never to become jaded or cynical or like, oh, are we done yet? Like, I'm just always so grateful to just be there. I think we're lucky to find what we're passionate about, what our purpose is. There's so many people that are working in some workaday job, getting just enough money to get the mortgage, to get the car payment, to get to something. And it's a treadmill. There's not the same moments of joy or expression, even not for money. I'm just saying just to be present in the moment of an aha, right? Which you, as a creative director for all of these publications and things, you're constantly in that stimulating moment of what are we going to create today? Yeah, it's constantly stimulating and it's never lost on me that I could have been at a job that I was not happy at and was monotonous. So I just always try to be grateful. I'm always open to like different things. That's why I think I remain so open to stuff outside of photography. I do a lot of philanthropic stuff. And right now I'm trying to design this line of clothing. And I just like keep it all open. People always ask me, oh, what's next for you? What's your five-year plan? And I don't have one. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So I just go with the flow. And fortunately, I'm always prepared for the next opportunity because I feel like I remain open to it. As a creative director for the various organizations, how do you juggle all of the responsibilities between those projects? The way I juggle the responsibilities, it sounds like a lot of work, but probably because I just love doing it so much. I really do. I get up in the morning and I go until nighttime and then I just feel so energized because it's not like, oh, I'm so exhausted from the long day of work. I just feel so energized by it all because I love doing it all. I came to a point a long time ago where I just wasn't going to do stuff that I didn't enjoy doing. And that sounds easier said than done, but I found that if I do stuff that I really love to do, then I'm able to continue to generate income and to sustain myself both financially and through gratification and juggling a lot of things is what keeps me feeling young and keeps me going. Good. Well, I do know that you're beginning to explore the world of NFTs. And that is a phrase people are hearing a lot. And we both know that it means non-fungible tokens. And I never knew about the fungible tokens, but I do know many artists, illustrators, musicians are getting into this. So 
Tell me what kind of material you're developing in the NFT world. I'm minting images of mine as NFTs, which, you know, is kind of like a no-brainer for me. I missed the boat on the first round of cryptocurrency. I had a young assistant tell me, like, oh, you got to get some Bitcoin. And I'm like, what is it? And I'm like, I can't wrap my head around that, so I'm not interested. But I'm not missing the boat this time because somebody reached out to me, this young, like, metaverse genius. His name is David Cash. He has a company called Cash Labs. He helps bring art and NFTs to market. He does a million other things, I mean, but he's involved in so many digital art forms and the metaverse and creating this whole other alternative reality. So he actually reached out to me because he feels that it's important to have more LGBTQ artists rise in the ranks of NFTs because they're not a lot of us. So he wanted to help me sort of get there. He explains things to me and he goes in one ear and out the other. <laughs> I don't know what he's talking about half time. I'm finally starting to wrap my head around it, but it's taken a minute. But he's helping me get some of my images to market. We did one NFT launch where I just dropped a couple of NFTs about two or three months ago and they went right away. And so I was excited about that. And that motivated me like, oh, well, that was easy. So I just actually minted a few more images today that's going to be part of a group drop. And then later this year, David and I are going to do like my big first full NFT drop, which is going to consist of 100 images. Cool. It's a way to create more art and reach a world where the digital life of this will be a part of your legacy. So we're exploring new avenues. Speaking of that, this is a sidebar question for the common person. So much advancement in photography on like Apple iPhone cameras and stuff. Do you have any hacks about here's what you're not using on your iPhone to get a better picture? Yeah, I think a lot of people don't know how to adjust the um, exposure on an iPhone. I have mine in my hand right here. So basically, if you're in the camera setting and you're about to take a photograph, I think a lot of people don't know this, even some other photographers, but say the subject is backlit and the subject is really dark. All you do is you press on the subject and you hold your finger until the little box pops up. And then there's a little adjusting thing on the side of the box where you can adjust the exposure to expose it correctly for the subject. Right. That's a world of difference with the sun behind folks. Yeah. So that's my little iPhone tidbit. Listen, we want to drive value on this podcast so people can go home and take a better selfie. The, you mentioned the sun and the sun, I would imagine, is one of the great lighting directors that you collaborate with at times if you show up at the right time of day when the shoot is. Do you shoot only in the studio or do you rely on the sun for external lighting sometimes? I shoot daylight a lot. I started out shooting daylight exclusively only because when I started shooting, I hadn't studied photography and technically I was completely ignorant. So I didn't know how to use studio lighting at all. So I shot everything daylight. So I became pretty proficient at knowing what times of day and where to position people to maximize light quality and stuff. So, but then I became really proficient at studio lighting. And now I sort of like go back and forth between the two. I don't really have a preference. It depends on what I'm going for. I'm proficient in both and I enjoy doing both. You do commercial advertising. Now that feels like a different handshake versus some creative thing where in this case, the product is the star. How does that feel when you're not working with the person or is it always a combined person and product? It's definitely um, a whole different dynamic. You're at the mercy of driving forces from five other people. So you're not really at the creative helm at that point. You bring, you know, your overview to the whole thing, but it's really managed by the ad agency or the client or the combination of the two. So I'm just like the, <laughs> the onset robot at that point. Obviously, the reason they pay me to do it as opposed to somebody else is because they know that I'm going to execute it properly and they know that I'm going to do it in a timely fashion and they're going to get the results that they need ultimately out of it. 
especially when there's like so many people involved and so many people contributing creative ideas. They need to know that whoever's going to execute it is capable of it. Right. I describe that as being a midwife because you do have all of these people standing around monitors and throwing ideas out. And I remember directing a shoot for, I'll call it a coffee maker just because I don't want to say the actual product, but they kept saying, get the coffee maker up front, put it up on the counter. And I kept going, it's okay. People will see it where it is. It just felt like, can we make it a member of the family instead of making it the three-year-old tap dancer that you push out front? Because there's no subtlety if they don't get full bore picture of the thing. But I think you become a diplomat in trying it a few ways and being sure that you give them what they want, but also give them the extra where you go, hey, what about this version? And then you solve the problem and you maintain some integrity as well. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, that's what everyone is compelled to do on these ad jobs. Everyone's trying to assert their position. So they want to seem necessary to the process. So that's why you get so many cooks in the kitchen, because everyone has to earn their salary or feel like they're earning their salary and feel like they're necessary. And that includes me. You know, so you're right. I do always try to interject a little flavor of my own into these ad jobs, which is usually shot down. But, you know, I try. Yeah, you got to bring that extra 10% to it. Now, you have a very muscular style. I know you shoot a lot of fitness magazines, and you look like a guy who works out. I saw the cover shoot that you were the subject in the April 2020 issue of Out Magazine, and you got the washboard abs. I mean, I'm a guy with a wash tub ab. So I guess I'm interested in what your workout regime is and how that impacts your creative life. I really have come to realize that everything that I do is creatively driven, including working out. I mean, it all stems from my being influenced by Tom of Finland aesthetic. Initially, it was more to just appear a certain way, but now it's become, especially through the pandemic where I was isolated, I started using it as like an opportunity to do a little human flesh sculpting. And I really look at it as like another art form that's just kind of an extension of, again, of how I need to see the world and how I need to see myself in the world. It's all creatively intertwined. People don't really understand that because I will post much like I'll post images that I've shot. I'll post like selfies of myself, but part of it is ego driven, but part of it is also exhibiting another art form. So I really come to see that that's what it is for me. I noticed in looking at your portfolio, which you have an extensive one at your Mike Ruiz website, that the subjects you shoot are glamorous, it's muscular, it's all those things, but they also seem like, and I don't want to call them an accessory like a necklace, but like an accessory to a crime, right? That they're in helping your experience yourself through the image and projecting some of your innermost feelings. It kind of is really interesting to be this deep into a career where you can go to somebody's website or you can go to something and you can see a panoramic view of their life. Like I know what you were doing on that day because all of those elements were made by you. Does that make sense? That makes total sense. That's what I've always surmised. Art in general is you ingest all this information and all this experience, and it's all regurgitated into how you see yourself and how you see the world. And that's exactly right. I can tell by looking at the stuff that I shot at certain time periods, what was happening, even though I don't remember the specifics of what was happening, I kind of know like emotionally what was happening. So just looking at the stuff that I was shooting. And now I'm like in a different phase where I think I've come to terms a lot with how I see myself in the world. And I, I don't need to create this alternate reality, which I did for a long time. I created an alternate reality as a form of escapism. And, and it was all beautiful and very aspirational and stuff and served me very well. And I had a great career as a result. 
But now I'm reconciled with all of it. The way the world is to me now is, is okay. Like I don't need to create an alternate reality. And it reflects in the stuff that I'm shooting. I'm a lot less focused on these ideals that seem unattainable to some people. I'm capturing like people's essence across the board from all types of people and from anybody really. People always ask me like, oh, do you only work with celebrities or models? And the answer to that now is no. I mean, I'll photograph anybody if I feel like I can capture something about their essence or humanity. Ansel Adams was the one who said, you don't take a photograph, you make a photograph, right? And that part of it is that you have the ability to bring the essence of that person out. There's something that comes alive in that moment of time. I refer to it as being a bow hunter. You must feel like you see it at the moment it happens. You're outside of the lens and you just have a very keen eye of when you got it. I do. And also I'm good at bringing it out. I mean, photography has really taught me how to listen and, and see people's nuanced sort of behavior and, and how to interpret it quickly, because I have to know who they are in the first five minutes that I meet them in order to execute A, B, C, D, and E. You know what I mean? Like I need to know what their temperament, what their mood is, what how they're feeling that day, what their general outlook is on life, because you could rub someone the wrong way really badly if you're not sensitive to all of that stuff within the first five minutes. So I've become really in tune with people's behavior and little subtleties in their moods and stuff. So that has really helped me bring the best out in people. I'm pretty quick. That's why like publicists love me because their talent usually is like, oh, you only have an hour with them. So I get that a lot. An hour will be done in 15 minutes. I get a lot of repeat business because of that because I'm quick and I'm quick at, at bringing stuff out in people and I don't need to do a million frames to get a great shot. I'm confident. I may lack confidence in other areas, but that's not one of them. I think we can all say that about something in our lives. You are a big advocate for your community and for outreach. One of the big causes out in front of you right now that you're associating directly with, I know that the LGBTQ community is really a forefront for you and also the animal rights folks. Are there other things that you want to amplify today? My brother has ALS, so I'm really going to start advocating and fundraising and awareness for ALS. And actually, he's a Leatherman, which I only found out when I started doing this project. So that's the funny thing about it. That's like a whole other interview we'll talk about next time. But the leather community, like a lot of these leather guys feel like they need to keep it on the DL just because they're so marginalized. And my brother was one of them. Like he just never felt it was necessary to have that conversation with me. But it turns out that he was one. And then I started working on this project. And then I went to his house and he opened his closet and it's like all this leather. I'm like, holy crap. So I said, well, I have to photograph you. He's about a year and a half into having been diagnosed with ALS. So he's having a tough time, but I, I'm glad that I was able to photograph him for this project. And in the process, I'm going to start advocating for ALS, but I continue to do animal advocacy. I've seen so many, so much terrible stuff that just happens to these animals who are treated like property and they're all sentient beings. And it's just heartbreaking to me. So I feel compelled to continue doing stuff for that. And I'll always do stuff for the LGBTQ community because growing up, I I was an underdog and I didn't have resources and I wish that I would have. So I'm trying to be those resources for people who need them now. On YouTube, I saw you telling a story about being bullied and that so many people have had experiences that traumatized them. People weren't paying attention. The messaging wasn't so strong and it leaves a deep scar on people mentally. And there's a disadvantage when you look in the mirror and you feel defined by the insecure people around you that are fighting really against themselves, but they use you as the weapon. 
you know, it's taken me 56 years to come to that realization that 99% of how I felt about myself was stuff that was being projected onto me. I had a bit of an epiphany over the pandemic, and I don't let that stuff phase me anymore. Oh, congratulations. I'm telling you, it is liberating to put that aside. For that to be baggage that you carry with you, along with your camera bag and everything else, it's unnecessary. But a very, very deep soul search, I think, to unburden that bag. Yeah, it takes a long time. It takes a lot of work. If you've been scarred badly by it, it takes all the more work. I'm just happy that I was able to figure it out at some point so that I could have some years with the knowledge that I'm not the byproduct of other people's damage. Yeah. Well, let's talk about something a little bit lighter, which is reality television. And you're joining on to all of these shows. How much fun are you having on that platform when you're stepping into an appearance on a reality television show? I love it. Again, I'm all about the experience. Opportunities are presented to me. I'm I'm game. And, you know, and these are kind of like unique opportunities to be presented to a person, you know, like, hey, you want to be on TV? I'm like, sure, why not? With that said, I was always very aware. I always tried to use those opportunities responsibly. And even if I was on like a show that might have appeared to be reckless, my place in it was to behave responsibly. And fortunately, I was able to do that. It was a great stepping stone for all of the visible advocacy that I do. I became a lot more visible as a result of doing it, and I used it responsibly. And I'm glad that I had those opportunities to do that. From a self-indulgent standpoint, it was fun for my ego. It was just fun. I mean, I enjoyed it. I was a very introverted child, so to have these opportunities to be like wildly extroverted, it was a lot of fun. It was very healing for me. (laughs) Reality TV was very healing for me. I don't know who else could say that. Right. That's true, because we all know reality television show isn't remotely real, right? I mean, it's not reality, rather. But you were on shows like America's Next Top Model and Canada's Next Top Model and so forth. And you were helping contestants and making the thing that you do well is you help them bring it, right? That they're finding out who they are. So, I mean, I think it's one of these things where as seen on TV seems to have value to other people, which that kind of exposure cannot be purchased. You've got to be as authentic as you can so that you're not just remembered as the horrible villain of the show, which the producers and every are happy to have somebody be that. They'll manipulate the scenario to try to get you into the confessional. <laughs> You can only do that to a certain extent. You can't create someone's complete identity in the editing bay, but you certainly can egg people on to be reckless. And I was always just like authentically myself, just like this kid in a candy store at all times and just happy to be there and grateful to be there. And I'm hoping that that was apparent. I enjoy doing that. It's kind of nice to be authentic and to not be reviled for it. (laughs) I would consider you based on the photographs I saw to be the kid in the eye candy store. Exactly. (laughs) I got to remember that one. While we're making light for a minute, I'm curious how you feel about the term beefcake photography, because I'm not saying that it describes your work. It's just, I thought about the cheesecake photography discussion, and I just didn't know whether that's a compliment or an insult. Well, it's neither. I just think it might be an overgeneralization of something. I mean, you know, there's photography of attractive fit men that is super beautiful fine art and some of it is gratuitous and some of it is very commercial and it can be very nuanced so to call any photograph of a fit guy beefcake photography might just be a little over generalizing but you know it's like calling something like gay photography yeah yeah it's too sweeping i understand that in general it's describing display of muscular 
male physique, but you're right. There's a big difference between Velveeta cheesy and some beautiful souffle. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm not appalled by that term. I mean, it's accurate. Certainly, if you ever applied to photographs of me, I'd happily take it. <laughs> I gotcha. Right. As long as it's 100% all beef, beefcake, right? <laughs> exactly. No fillers. Right. <laughs> Photographing moments in our life is the closest thing we have to a time travel machine, I think, in that we can revisit our past and tell the story. Like, I know I make a living talking about nostalgia and going through family slides, and I can't tell you how often that still image of a Kodachrome slide unfolded stories of that aunt and that uncle and that haircut and that outfit and that dumb Halloween costume. And as you said earlier, there was a barometer where you were emotionally at that moment. And it must be really fun to share those photos and to talk to people about those various chapters in your life. It is. I enjoy doing that, especially if I go way back. Like if I haven't seen stuff that I've done in years and years, you know, I dig it up or I find it on the internet or something. And, I, you know, all these memories come flooding back. So it's stuff that I hadn't thought about in a long time, stuff that brought me a lot of joy. It's like a good hard drive of information, of emotional information that you can access just by looking at an image. Well, I appreciate you sharing your knowledge, wisdom, the fun stories as well. I think that photography is the closest thing we have to an international language. It can be understood universally. You're a master at it, and I appreciate your shining light and illuminating a little bit about your journey and the world of photography in general and invest in the day with us. Thanks so much. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and we will always hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, under the savvy producership of Amanda Rosenberg, with sound editing under the steady hand of Marcus Siniskalki. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp, with additional production support and sanity provided by Delilah Lovejoy, Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help us grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityandcaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun. As in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. <laughs> <laughs>